Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Much of migration in Melbourne is studied in a post-war context, dominated by Greeks and Italians fleeing a post-war Europe. But it undoubtedly goes back much further. Asian migrants played a notable part in the city's growth, and these people brought new languages and cultures with them. Dr. Nadia Rook is a lecturer in the Department of Archaeology and History at La Trobe University and has been studying the diversity of language and culture in Melbourne's late 19th century. Thank you for joining me, Nadia. Thank you, Matthew. So if you could start by giving me a bit of a snapshot of Asian migration in that time period, what did it look like in Australia's early days and why were people coming here? Sure. Asian migration to Melbourne really began with the discovery of gold in Victoria in 1851, um, which saw a substantial number of migrants from China, mostly actually from southern China, Mm. from provinces in Canton, arrive. So by that time, Melbourne had already been laid on the lands of the Kulin people for around two decades and so um, was dominated by migrants from Britain and other parts of Europe. So people might be more familiar with the kind of presence of substantial numbers of Chinese people in Melbourne in the late 19th century, but they may be less familiar with the wave of migration from South Asia that really became noticeable from the late 1880s into the 1890s. So from India, which at that time encompassed also current-day Pakistan and Bangladesh, as well as from Afghanistan and Syria or current-day Lebanon. They were kind of, I guess, homogenised in the discourses of settlers and often lumped together as as Hindus, but they were actually from various parts of of the world. Right. So to some people in Melbourne, they would generalise and say these migrants all look the same, but to each other, they'd be a very diverse, oh, you're from the other side of the Indian subcontinent and um, maybe have different languages and practices. So you'd get a lot of people lumped together, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So around Melbourne, what would you what would you see and hear then? Would you need to go to certain places to see them? And how big a population are we talking? Sure. The migrant hubs were Little Burke Street, Lonsdale Street, Little Lonsdale Street, which were full of cheap boarding houses and warehouses mm. um, that offered cheap rents for recent migrants. So... For instance, in Little Burke Street, sure, you would have heard many Cantonese dialects and walking further north up to Little Lonsdale Street, you would have heard perhaps Hindi and Urdu and Pashto and Arabic and even Bengali and Tamil. Whereas in the more respectable and commercial streets of Collins Street and Burke Street, tended to be more European-dominated and Anglophone-dominated. Mm. Although you may have heard a speech in French or German, perhaps, in some of the men's clubs on Collins Street on occasion. Just to give people context who might be listening overseas, this is really inner-city kind of high-rise area now. This is the Melbourne grid that you're talking about. Yeah, so times have changed quite a lot, haven't they? Yeah, so... In the kind of popular imagination, it was quite polarised, this quite small grid of of 24 street blocks. And so Collins and Burke, which were imagined as spaces of purity and lightness and whiteness actually in this time as well, Mm. were only a few blocks away from these other streets, which were imagined as kind of depraved of poverty and criminality and otherness 
you know, supporting mixed race and, and non-white populations. Yeah. But they were, in fact, actually very interconnected, these streets. So while it might be tempting to map out a linguistic order across the grid, you know, moving from English being the language of Collins and Burke and, you know, Chinese of Little Burke and uh, Hindi of Little Lonsdale Street, that map is a bit misleading because, of course, these people, these Melbourne residents, coloured and non-coloured alike, moved through the grid and took their voices with them. Non-white migrants used the colonial institutions on Burke and Collins streets. They visited the GPO, for instance, to post letters and money back to their family. They visited the banks to do their business and they spoke their languages there as well. Mm. So it was quite fluid in social reality. This was a very rich and, and fluid language scape. And you say that uh, some of them were coming over to take advantage of the gold rush. So were they stretching, you know, in theory, all the way out to Bendigo in the population? Um, So the gold rush really wound up in the 1860s. So the time I'm looking at in 1890s, it's not so much gold, but other occupations. So many Chinese working as merchants, as carpenters, furniture makers, cooks, so many things, doctors, herbalists. And the South Asian population as well did a variety of jobs. Many took up the occupation of of hawking, Mm. which was an easy entree to the economy, though a controversial one. They did move into regional cities as well. So there was a notable South Asian presence in Ballarat and Bendigo and Hamilton and Portland and and right across the colony or Victoria, as Mm. we now know it. And as far as numbers go, how big a portion of the population are we talking? So we're talking really quite a small percentage of the population. At the time of Federation in 1901, there were about 6,300 Chinese people in the colony, so the census registered, and perhaps around 1,000 more who were designated mixed race in the language of the day. And there are around perhaps... 1,100 or 1,200 Indian British subjects in Mm. the colony and another few hundred Afghan and and Syrian people. So we're talking something around 1% of the population, which was about 1,200,000 at that time. So although they were really quite a small percentage of the population, but they were very noticed and noticeable and they loomed large in the public imagination at the time. Mm. So how do you go about researching uh, such a diverse language landscape then? I'm especially curious how you go about that where their footprint, where they were, mightn't be that noticeable anymore. Yeah, certainly it's not visible in the city today necessarily. But what I did was I did a survey of the colonial court records, which are held at the Public Records Office of Victoria in North Melbourne. So I spent about two and a half years to look at the cover, if not also the contents of every criminal court briefing that was performed in Victoria in the 1890s. Okay. Because that was the only way I had to look at every court case to identify the ones where an interpreter was employed. And where an interpreter was employed, language difference was at play. Through that, it just opened up this amazing, rich picture of the diversity of languages and people present in Melbourne and Victoria that I had not imagined. So it was quite an archival marathon. I spent about two or three days a week for 
two to three years to do that. So, What sort of thing were you finding there that surprised you? So I guess the large presence of Indians in the colony mm. um, surprised me. In my mind, Melbourne was basically a British city, you know, fundamentally shaped by British colonisation and I had a vague idea of there being a Chinese presence as well. So Mm. I was really surprised about the presence of Indians in the colony. And the other thing that was interesting were the court interpreters themselves, of which there were many, but there were a number of most trusted and frequently employed interpreters who were all actually English-born white men. And these interpreters were really celebrities of their day as well. They were they were very public figures. So Charles Powell Hodges was known as the chief Chinese interpreter and mm. he was the most trusted. But there were other well-known Chinese interpreters as well, such as Henry Lee Young in Ballarat and James Apu in Bendigo. Um, and the most commonly employed interpreters for South Asian migrants were... Gilbert Smith and Arthur Pritchard and again they were quite well known and they became also spokesmen for the communities Mm. often in the court but outside of the courtroom because their lives and their livelihoods were so bound up with the communities that they interpreted for in the lead up to the introduction of the Immigration Restriction Act in 1901, commonly known as the White Australia Policy, they were really outspoken that this act would be detrimental to these communities. So those people were surprising to me as well. Were the court systems (laughs) treating these people fairly? What kind of cases were being heard? So I guess there's two things in terms of thinking about linguistic justice, two cases that really stand out. One was a case where a Chinese witness had given their testimony through an interpreter and someone in the audience, a Chinese member of the audience, Albert Wasing, heard the testimony being translated and felt that it had been translated inaccurately. Mm. Now, the courts couldn't accept testimony that was inaccurately translated because, you know, it was contrary to the performance of justice. So according to the conventions of common law, you know, you had to provide an interpreter and the translation should be accurate. What this did then was open up another court case where they investigated whether or not testimony had been accurately translated. And a Chinese interpreter, uh, Pu, said, and look, by the way, you know, there are 300 dialects spoken in Canton and it turned out that the interpreter spoke a different dialect to the witness and it kind of was a moment that exposed the fact that it was really a complex and important process to match the linguistic skill of the interpreter with that of the witness. Mm. And and it raised the question of, well, how often does this happen that isn't recorded? Mm. It's complex because on the one hand, the court system want to deliver linguistic justice and want to be seen to deliver linguistic justice. Otherwise, why would you believe that they are? in fact, just. But on the other hand, this is an era where we see the rise of an English-speaking identity of especially white men, including Alfred Deacon, claiming to be English-speaking men, belonging to the quote-unquote English-speaking race. 
So this is an atmosphere where English is seen as a language that you should speak. And yet in the courts, they are dealing with engaging with translation and other languages. Mm. So in 1890, an Indian hawker called Fata Chand was charged of murdering his hawking colleague, Jugumul. Fata Chand had spoken English with his European and Aboriginal customers previously, although his English wasn't as good, reportedly, as his hawking partner. Once he entered the courtroom, though, he was provided with an interpreter, rightly, because although he knew some English, he didn't know enough English to be able to fully understand the proceedings of his own trial. So as a defendant, he was provided with an interpreter. Mm-hmm. Now, over the course of his trial, though, which went on for many months, and he's sitting in the courtroom and he's either speaking in Hindi or not speaking at all. So he becomes constructed as unable to speak English. And so through this process, he becomes known as fitting in with an emerging stereotype of that nuisance Indian hawker who cannot speak our language. Eventually, he was convicted on the basis of circumstantial evidence and hanged at the Melbourne jail in April 1891 Right. and uttered his last words in Hindi, which were then translated into English by the interpreter Gilbert Smith. So... You sort of have to look quite closely to see what's going on here. But I think you can see that the social atmosphere where there was a decreasing tolerance for people who did not speak English, it did shape legal trials, I think, but in in complex ways. So can we talk about the occupation of hawkers? That Mm. seems to be quite dominated by Indian migrants from what you're saying. Mm. What was that occupation like and how did those people experience that? Mm. So, yeah, I mean, the 1890s was also a time of economic depression in Victoria. And that coincided with the arrival of a lot of Indian migrants, the majority of whom took up the occupation of hawking. It didn't take much training or set up costs and you just needed a license, a hawker's license to be able to hawk. And it was one pound for a foot license and two pounds for a horse and cart license. So so what did a hawker do? They had things to sell. A hawker was basically a traveling salesperson Mm. and they would stock up on goods at a warehouse, perhaps in Melbourne or another center, and then travel through remote areas, regional towns to sell goods on the doorsteps of farmers and, and rural residents. So it involved a lot of travel. In some ways, you're quite vulnerable. You, you often had to ask for accommodation. Maybe you would ask a, a customer if you could sleep in, the, in their house or in their shed or if they were less friendly just in their yard mm. um, for the night. And how were the Indians received in this sort of occupation? Amongst uh, European settlers, there was a lot of negative narratives that began to be spun about Indian hawkers at the same time as European customers were mostly happy to buy their goods. But there was an idea that they were a nuisance, that they were a threat to our women because they arrived on the doorstep 
of households during the day. Maybe the men were away. Maybe the men were away looking for work during the Depression. Mm. And this was also a time when there are a lot of fears of, you know, interracial mixing and miscegenation. So the, the kind of proximity and even intimate relationships that might have been possible between a hawker and their customer became the focus of, of fear, especially for white men at this time. And there was there was this narrative spun through the 1890s that Indian hawkers were a nuisance and a threat and they needed to be to be got rid of. They needed to go back yeah. to and, India. And as far as language goes? As far as language goes, bound up with that negative stereotype was the stereotype that Indian hawkers could not speak our language, that they could not speak English, which is really a dubious claim, <laughs> although some could, some couldn't, some were learning on the job. Mm. Um, so as I mentioned, you needed a license to be a hawker. In 1891, the Premier James Munro contacted the Indian government and said, look, can't you stop your subjects coming here? And they said, no, we can't stop Indian migration legally. They're free to move through the empire. Mm. have to remember, Victoria was part of the British Empire, was a colony of the British Empire like India was. And in fact, India and Australia's relationship had been described as colonial cousins, you know. So you couldn't just discriminate against Indian hawkers or Indian migrants outright. So there was an idea that, well, maybe if we can find a way to stop them getting hawkers licenses, they won't be able to make a livelihood here in the colony and therefore they will leave again. Yeah, wow. So the government and legal authorities began to experiment with this in the annual hawkers license courts. And from actually the mid-1880s, they began to, on their own discretion, include an English language test component to the Hawker's Licence Test, which previously you, you needed a reference of good character, mostly, to get a Hawker's Licence. So it was really the politics of Indian immigration that saw an English language test component begin to be introduced in the courts and mm. it was endorsed by the colonial authorities by the solicitor general and and twice in the 1890s the Victorian government who were leading the way in this innovation of a way to potentially stem Indian immigration in 1894 and 1899 they tried to amend the Hawker's Licence Act to introduce this English language test but they were unsuccessful because It was clear to everyone that this test was discriminatory, that it would discriminate against our fellow Indian British subjects. It was clear to to everyone really that this was the intention behind it and that this was a racially based form of discrimination, Mm. which they could not do because Britain would not tolerate that and therefore Britain wouldn't give royal assent to this amendment. So although they talked about it a lot and they actually practiced it in the court, it was not given that sort of legal stamp of approval. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that 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 decision will be made (laughs) there and yet a few years later in 1901, Mm. when Australia was federated into Mm. our own little country, immigration restrictions would become law then and that there would be a formal English test to get into the country and become an Australian citizen. How much of an impact did the Immigration Restriction Act have on the migrants that were already living in Melbourne at the time? It had an impact in a number of ways, although it was, I guess, unevenly felt amongst the population. But 
For one thing, it was very anxiety provoking because you weren't sure what it would mean for you. Many of these migrants, settlers really had made Victoria or Australia their home, Mm. but maybe they had still family elsewhere in other countries. So it meant that there was less of a freedom to come and go from the new nation to visit your family. And it had a really big impact too on people involved in trade. This was something that perhaps white Australians hadn't thought through properly was given that many white Australians were really dependent not just on coloured labour but also on coloured markets overseas in China and India, which, and for those goods to be moved, it involved the mobility of people as well, of merchants and traders. So Mm. the impact wasn't necessarily immediate in terms of there wasn't mass deportation or over the next few decades, it definitely saw a dramatic decrease in the non-white population. It feels like there was an unspoken way of enforcing it. They couldn't officially write down, keep these people out. We will say that it's to do with language. Mm. It was really dependent on how much capital you had, how much social capital, how much money behind you as well, Yeah, that you could maybe slip some money to the immigration officer. And there was a thing called the Certificate of Exemption from the Dictation Test. Wow. So, And there was a trade in those. So there were ways to get around the policy. And it was quite messy. But I guess the net effect in the long term was to make it hard, if not impossible, to move in and out of Australia if you weren't white. So in the 1970s, the white Australia policy had mostly been dismantled by then. But nowadays, in the current terror fear climate that we've got going on, there's steps to reintroduce a a language test. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so the recent move to introduce an English language test as a prerequisite for citizenship, for me, rings alarm bells. Knowing the history that I know, that one of the key tools of the white Australia policy was a language test. And also, having spent a lot of time looking at the 1890s and at the way that the ability to speak English had become bound up with a particularly white Australian identity. So therefore, the introduction of a language test for citizenship does ring alarm bells about whether this is a return to the structures and policies, a new form of white Australia policy. Because even though, of course, English is the dominant language of Australian society today, and there's been A lot of people saying, yes, but migrants need to speak English in order to function in Australian society. But what we see in the introduction of this English test is also the prescriptive idea that migrants should speak English as if the state knows what's best for migrants. Mm. But knowing the history that I know, knowing the way that the dominance of English in this country and in Melbourne is not actually natural, it's it's. It's been historically produced, first through the British colonisation of Indigenous lands and the importation and prescription of English language through those colonial processes, and then through this process of a white Australian nation building, the dominance of English has been further buttressed 
So it's not natural. And in fact, if we look at a deep historical perspective, we can see that actually before and after colonisation, multilingualism and translation has also been very normal. And in fact, we've only really had about 120 years where there's been an equation of the ability to speak English as a precondition for belonging here. Mm. So I think it is really important not just to think about what migrants need and, and who should have the power to prescribe what language they need, but also from the perspective of historical justice, I think we should question that narrative that migrants should speak English in order to belong here. Thank you very much for your time, Nadia. That's really fascinating stuff. Thank you. It's been great. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can follow Nadia on Twitter. She's at Nadia Rook, and Rook is spelled R-H-O-O-K. And you can follow La Trobe Asia. We're at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.